What's common about economically successful societies is that they have these inclusive institutions. And what I mean by that is rules that create broad-based patterns of incentives and opportunities for people. Extractive institutions are sort of the opposite. They're rules that create incentives and opportunities for some people, but not for most people. I think in Why Nations Fail, we try to illustrate this with this comparison at the start between the United States and Mexico, right down to the difference between the two richest people in the world. Hello, my name is James Robinson. I'm uh, author of Why Nations Fail and The Narrow Corridor. I'm a university professor at the University of Chicago in the United States, and you're listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. Development, political institutions, economic institutions, progress, prosperity, all very loaded terms, but very important terms as well. Something we talk about all the time. I had one of the most amazing conversations ever with best-selling author and world-renowned economist, Professor James Robinson. It's well understood by economic historians that the huge differences in the world we see today in terms of prosperity were created by the Industrial Revolution, which starts kind of in the second half of the 18th century in textiles, mechanization, the development of factory system, transportation, tarmac, steam engines, railways. So you get this immense bundle of technologies that raise human productivity immensely, but they spread very unevenly throughout the world. Probably in 1750, the difference in living standards between the poorest and richest part of the world was a factor of about four. Now it's a factor of 100. And that's because all these technologies and subsequent ways waves of technologies, electricity, whatever it is, light bulbs. They didn't get to Kananga. There's no electricity. Can you imagine? No electricity. How do you run a factory? How do you read your school? How does your kid read their book at night under a candle? So there's two questions there. One is, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in Britain when it did? And then why doesn't it spread everywhere? Why don't they have electricity and running water in Kananga? We also talk about the gradual, unremarkable internal institutional decline of the once glorious Ottoman Empire that spanned over the Middle East, Europe, Africa from the 14th century until around the 20th century. The Ottomans captured Constantinople, was it 1453? They expanded into the Middle East and then they conquered what was left of the Eastern Roman Empire in the 15th century. And they created an empire which lasted until the First World War. That we give examples in the book of how often there's sort of contradictions between allowing the economy to flourish and maintaining political authority. So we give this famous example of the printing press, where the printing press, you might have thought, would have been one of the most amazing modern technologies. Books allows dissemination of knowledge and ideas and accumulation of evidence. But in the Ottoman Empire, they actually banned the printing press. They blocked the printing press. Why? Because it's an incredibly productive technology, but they were also worried about disseminating subversive ideas or criticism of the government or alternative plans. For them, it was sort of politically destabilizing. In the same way as the Chinese government today censors the internet like crazy. We also talk about the effects of the brutally oppressive European colonialism in the last 300 years on the institutions of Middle East, Africa, Asia, and the impact it has on their economic development today. European colonialism also heavily impacted institutions in Egypt and throughout the Middle East after the mm. end of the First World War. From that perspective, it looks similar, you could say, to many parts of Africa. There was a history of extractive institutions 
institutions, but then it was followed by European colonialism, which wasn't interested in transforming the societies either, but it's still suffering from this legacy of extractive institutions, colonial institutions, which left all these dictatorships everywhere, like in Syria and in Libya. And it has many of the same problems of sub-Saharan Africa, also of these kind of colonially designed, pretty incoherent countries. We also talk about Professor James's early prognostications about China and how although it has done well so far, but how he thinks that it won't last for much longer, just like the economic powerhouse of the Soviet Union and how it fell. If you look at what drove economic growth in China from the 1970s, that is very consistent with the theory in the sense that what drove it is this movement towards much more inclusive economic institutions. The first thing Deng Xiaoping did was he abolished the collectivization of agriculture. They allowed people to make their own decisions. They, they deregulated prices. They introduced this household responsibility system so people could just make their own decisions and decide what to plant and what to do. They created incentives. It's like very straightforward. And there was a huge increase in productivity. Then in the 1980s, that starts spreading into the industrial sector. That big picture is what leads to this massive spurt of economic growth is this transition from extractive to inclusive economic institutions. But what I say is like, that won't persist because political institutions are still extractive. Yeah, you have this very effective state, but it's completely unaccountable to the people. But now it's a sort of personalized dictatorship. That and much more on the economic history of the world and its effects on institutions that we have today coming right up on this episode. James, thanks a lot for being in the Innovation Civilization podcast. What a great pleasure to have you here today. My pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much. James, you've written eight books so far. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself first, who you are, and how you got into the study of institutions, economics, and nations in the first place? Oh, that's a complicated problem. Well, I'm English. I grew up in the 1970s in England, which was a very political time. And I started at the London School of Economics studying politics in the autumn autumn of 1979, Mrs. Thatcher had just become prime minister. So it was a very intense moment to study politics. But when I got to the LSE, I realized that actually politics was all about economics. Everybody was just talking about economics. They were talking about the money supply and privatization and everybody mm -hmm. reading Milton Friedman and Hayek and everything. So then I thought like, oh gosh, I better learn something about economics. There was a class of political scientists, but I'd already taught myself. I'd already read the book. I thought like, ah, I'm not taking that. I'll do something more serious. And I took the class which was designed for economics, mm -hmm. economic students, which was taught right. by a Japanese mathematical economist called Mikio Morishima, and he converted me to economics. It was just like the most exciting right. class. And it was about all these big questions that I subsequently got fascinated with. The first book that we read in that class was Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit yeah. of Capitalism. It was about why the Industrial Revolution happened in Western Europe and not elsewhere in the world. It was a sort of cultural thing theory about the Reformation. Yeah. So I was 18. I didn't know how to study something like that. But I guess it planted a seed which grew. And then I got obsessed with economics and studying economics. I went to the United States. I did a PhD at Yale. I got obsessed with economics and I like did a PhD in mathematical economic theory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you can correct me, but I believe that before the specialization of the disciplines happened between politics and economics, I think like before 18th century, it was called political economy, the whole kind of subject. So I mean, your interests are 
quite aligned and the fact that one relates to the other quite makes sense as well. Yeah, that's right. It's only in the late 19th century that economics sort of yeah. to segregate itself from other Correct. social sciences. You know, this yeah. moment when sociology and whatever gets defined and economics sort of sets itself up with this very narrow agenda. But that's an agenda I yeah. reject. Yeah, that makes sense. And I had talked to a lot of people outside of academia, entrepreneurs and who are very interested in politics, and they kind of poo-poo on the fact that what is political science? Is that even a science? <laughs> you know, it's quite interesting how those disciplines came about and morphed themselves, really. Yeah, they do poo-poo yeah. with political science as a science. But the evolution, Darwin never had a mathematical theory of evolution. Mm. You read the origin of the species. Well, most evolutionary theory, it's not mathematical at all in the way that an economist would think of as being mm. real science. In fact, it's not testing hypotheses in a way that most economists would think was real science. But everyone thinks that evolution and evolutionary biology are science. It's a mm. kind of methodology. It's a way of thinking about testing hypotheses and making statements about the world. And so I think economists are a bit deluded about that, frankly. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, really. In your time, in terms of the last 30 years of your career, compared to the first book you wrote, how would you say your thinking has evolved over the years and over the decades, really? Yeah, I think my thinking has evolved sort of immensely, because I feel like I didn't really understand anything 30 years ago. I was taught this theory of comparative economic development, for example, that just didn't seem to contain what was necessary to to explain differences between Africa or Latin America. It just didn't contain it. And it just didn't square mm -hmm. with my own personal experiences or understanding or reading history or outside social science, anthropology. It just seemed to be all these things that were irrelevant to understanding differences in the world. And it just wasn't there. So I had to put it in there. And I guess the first thing that, that we put in there was politics and trying to understand how differences in politics and political institutions and political systems impacted mm -hmm. different patterns of economic economic development, but also institutions trying to understand how these societies were organized so differently. If you go and spend some time in Africa, you realize that African societies organize in an extremely different way from Western society in ways that look like it's got to be important for economy or economic development. And that's true about Islamic society. It's true about China. It's true about Japan. There's just these enormous differences in the world in institutions. I guess a lot of the work that I've done in the last 30 years has been sort of trying to conceptualize that and measure it and understand what the impact the types of approaches mm. I've used have been very different like the very historical mm. trying to understand the deep history of different parts of the world collecting data testing yeah. hypotheses formulating models of different mechanisms different aspects of it the thing about doing academic research also is that you have to bite off something you can chew true yeah so absolutely scope the, it properly these huge differences between different mm. parts the world or where do you start you have to find a kind of entry point you have yeah. to find something manageable and then you study that intensively it doesn't mean that's the only thing that's important but it means you can sort of see how to approach it then you broaden you study more things and you try to understand how they relate to each other that makes a lot of sense really let's peg our goalposts a little bit there are a few different terms that you talk about a few different things you talk about how would you define democracy itself different people kind of have different definitions is it just consensus generation or is it just one person, one vote that we know today. Political scientists and economists would have a way of defining democracy. 
might think of it as being a very Eurocentric way of thinking about it. But democracy is typically associated with a particular set of political institutions or a particular way of choosing the government or who's going to control or run the government. Usually one person, one adult, one vote, some process via which people get to express their political preferences, usually through voting. And then institutions decide based on who gets the most votes, who's going to form the government. You'd think of it as typically a set of political institutions like you have in the United States or you you have in Western Europe with elections, people vote, the government is accountable to the people, the people can get rid of the government if they don't Mm -hmm. like it. But I say that's a sort of Eurocentric definition of democracy because there's very different ideas of participation and also like legitimate ways of making decisions. Just to give you one example, I mean, in Africa, it's very common. I say Africa is a big heterogeneous place, but there Mm -hmm. are some things which are pretty common to large parts of Africa. One of them Mm -hmm. is that the way you make decisions is through consensus. Like this idea that we have in Western society that if there's 51 of us and 49 of you, then we there's more of us and we get to decide what happens. We're winners and you're losers. That's a very non kind of African way of thinking about stuff. Like you do stuff through consensus. We all have to agree and we just keep deliberating and discussing until we... So it has to be 100 zero then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, that's a very weird idea. In the United States, if I proposed to my faculty that this is how we're going to make decisions, they think I was crazy. How can you ever agree on stuff? No, people disagree. But that's not the logic in Africa. So just to give you an example of how there isn't really a kind of uniform understanding of even Mm. what democratic practices are. But at least the definition I gave you is sort of what's standard in social science. But of course, social science is dominated by Western notions of institutions and history. Yeah, that makes sense, really. And when you say institutions, I believe you mean the judiciary, for example, the parliament, as well as the economic institutions. Can you define for whoever is not from political economics background of what do you mean by institutions? Yeah, I mean, by institutions, I mean, just like the rules, in some sense, the rules in society, the rules that govern people's incentives and condition people's behavior. And the rules can be exactly as you said, they can be the law or they can be the constitution, but they can also be much more informal than that. They could be social norms. They could be kind of practices that influence the way you operate or the way you think about the world Mm -hmm. or the incentives you face. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best way to think about it, the rules, but it's a pretty expansive notion of what rules in society are. Okay. You talk a lot in your work about extractive versus inclusive institutions. What are the characteristics of extractive institutions and what are the unique characteristics of inclusive institutions, would you say? Yeah, that's a language that we developed to try to get people to see what's common about many successful societies and what's common about many unsuccessful societies, at least Mm -hmm. economically speaking. And what's common about economically successful societies is that they have these inclusive institutions. What I mean by that is rules that create broad-based patterns of incentives and opportunities for people. Extractive institutions are sort of the opposite. They're rules that create incentives and opportunities for some people, but not for most people. In Why Nations Fail, we try to illustrate this with this comparison at the start between the United States and Mexico, right down to the difference between 
between the two richest people in the world when we wrote the book, which was Bill mm-hmm. Gates, Carlos Slim. If you ask yourself, how did those two people get so rich? They're both incredibly wealthy, but the way they made their money is extremely different. And that tells you everything about the difference between the United States and Mexico, which is Bill Gates made his money through innovation. He started a company when he was a student at Harvard and he innovated. He was an innovator. And that's how you make money in the United States. If you look at innovation, there's a huge amount of social mobility and people with ideas and talent and ambition and entrepreneurial kind of vision getting to the top. You may not like some of them as human beings, but you have to admire what they do. Carlos Slim, he made his money by getting his friends in the government, the single party, undemocratic government, to privatize the state telecom monopoly to him completely unregulated. Mm. That was great for him, but it was terrible for most Mexicans. That's an example of extractive institutions in Mexico because they concentrate opportunities and incentives in the hands of a few people, politically connected people. But in the US, it's a free-for-all. Like You could be Bill Gates, you could get financing, you could start a company, you could register the company. Yeah, people will try to drive you out of business and they compete with you. And But there's much more of a level playing field. That's the terminology we use. So it's a much more inclusive situation where many people can get to the top and many people are incentivized to innovate and start businesses. But in Mexico, most people don't have any incentives and opportunities because they're excluded from those, which are concentrated in the hands of people who are connected. I think that's the difference between inclusive and extractive institutions. They're sets of rules with very Mm -hmm. different incentives and opportunities that create very different patterns of incentives and opportunities. That's quite interesting. One other thing you talk about is to drive economic growth, you need to have this thing called, you term, political centralization. So what do you mean by political centralization? I talk to like folks in the crypto world and they hate the term centralized. It's all about decentralized and David Hume and stuff like that. What do you mean by political centralization and driving economic growth here? The big fact about world history is that successful economic development is associated with powerful state institutions. The parts of the world that are most prosperous are the parts of the world that have most powerful state institutions. So when I talk about political centralization, I mean powerful state institutions. Let me give you an example, go back to Mm. Bill Gates and Carlos Slim. The US has this long history going back to the 1870s of imposing antitrust on big business, trying to promote competition. Rockefeller, who was probably the first billionaire in the late 19th century, he started this Standard Oil Company, which was an enormous attempt to create a monopoly. It was broken up. He was found guilty of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act, the same act that Bill Gates was found guilty of violating, and it was broken up. In Mexico, they have perfectly good antitrust laws, beautiful antitrust laws, but the government is incapable of enforcing them. The government could never enforce antitrust laws against Carlos Slim the way that they enforce antitrust laws against Bill Gates. That's an example of the power of the state. The US state has the power to enforce antitrust laws on the richest man in the planet. The Mexican state, unthinkable. If you look at Latin America everywhere, they have beautiful laws, but they're just not enforced. The government can't enforce these laws against right. powerful, rich people. That's just one example. There's many examples in the book of okay. that. So I think anarchy is yeah. a romantic so, reason. So you mean like enforceability is a key property of political centralized institutions, right? It's not just about laws or rules. It's about having the ability to execute the law to whoever. Yeah, you need to be able to raise taxes and provide public goods. I've just been in Congo for a month. And the place where we're working in Congo, in Kasai, there's no government in Kasai. There's no taxation. There's no public good provision. There's no electricity. 
It's a city of like 1.6 million where we're working in Kananga. There's no public good provision, zero. Like it's an amazingly safe place, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, because of this vigilante, this mm-hmm. extremely powerful vigilante justice. So mm-hmm. if you steal something, you'll be caught by a mob and like lynched from a lamppost. Like it's just sort of hideous, but it actually, mm-hmm. it's hideously violent, but actually it provides sort of security and there's traditional authorities and chiefs who kind of run this. But the government does nothing, zero. It's just terribly poor. It's very poor. There's no public good provision. There's no services. There's just like nothing. But that's not an environment in which economic development flourishes, I can tell you. It's just incredible poverty. So in a way, do you mean also that inclusive institutions are more democratic, would you say? I think that's part of it. Part of it is inclusive. There's two layers here. There's economic institutions and there's political institutions. So Mm -hmm. I think that's useful to kind of keep separate in the sense that what Bill Gates was doing was responding to economic incentives and Mm -hmm. to innovate and start a business. And that's governed by the economic rules and the Mm -hmm. inclusive economic institutions in the United Mm -hmm. States. But why is it that societies have inclusive economic institutions or extractive economic institutions, like in Mexico? That's to do with the politics. That's the layer of political institutions. How is it that the United States ends up with relatively inclusive economic institutions? That's because it has more inclusive political institutions. And there's two dimensions. One is the thing we're just talking about, which is having this centralized state. And the other Mm -hmm. is what you just discussed, which is is democracy. You don't get inclusive institutions through the whim of some dictatorship or autocratic regime. It can happen. Mm. It's happened in China for 40 years. But our view of that is that's just transitory. That can't possibly last. Look at what's happened in Russia. The Soviet Union as well. For 10 years, 15 years, things look really different in Russia and then they just disappeared. And the same thing will happen in China. That's one of the more... We'll come back to China in a bit and discuss more about it. So would you say that in that case, how is democracy democracy related to economic development, does this mean that putting something and making some institutions and a society more democratic automatically kickstarts the economic development engine? Or would you say you install economic development first and then install democracy, just like South Korea, for example? Is democracy at all kind of related to economic development? Where do you stand on that debate? I'd say a couple of things. I'd say we've done a lot of scientific research on that. And it's true that other things equal, if a society democratizes then they become richer. So that's the average pattern that's very robust in the data. That being said, if you turned the Central African Republic into a democracy tomorrow, that still leaves many, many problems. So that's not a simple solution to the Central African Republic's problems. It might solve some problems, but there are other fundamental institutional problems to do with the state, the organization of the state, the nature of the state also. I think the South Korean path is a kind of interesting one, but it's not very representative of what's happened in world history. And in fact, mm-hmm. this is somehow what our book, The Narrow Corridor, is about. This fact, fact, what you see in societies today that are economically successful, much more typical than the South Korean case, is a pattern where you build the state and democracy together, if you like, or you build mm-hmm. more effective state institutions while you simultaneously make the political system more democratic. You get a co-evolution of state and democracy like that. That's what you've seen in Western Europe 
Europe. That's what you saw in North America. South Korea doesn't fit that pattern so well, but there's always exceptions to every generalization you can make okay. because there's always idiosyncratic features. There's like personalities, there's culture, there's yeah. the fact that Korea was divided and that with North Korea and South Korea had very different models and they fought a war. There's things that you can't capture with simple generalizations about the world. What I was describing is the big picture. So I think democracy is, it's ultimately necessary to have a successful modern society, but on mm -hmm. its own, creating it is neither necessary nor sufficient. Yeah, you okay. have to build institutions. Yeah, that makes sense, really. Let's go on to a few different examples that you talk about in the book, just for our listeners, really. I think you mentioned that England specifically, firstly, Western Europe, but then England is an industrial revolution. You guys mentioned was the source of the biggest inequality in the world. And the fact that whoever jumped on board onto the gravy train became developed, whoever didn't, didn't. Tell us more about that whole situation there. What happened with the glorious revolution? How was it political and then economic? Hmm. Walk us through that, basically. I think it's well understood by historians and economic historians that the huge differences in the world we see today in terms of prosperity were created by the Industrial Revolution, which starts in the second half of the 18th century in textiles, mechanization, the development of factory system, transportation, tarmac, steam engines, railways. Like You get this immense bundle of technologies that raise human productivity immensely, but they spread very unevenly throughout the world. Probably in 1750, the difference in living standards between the poorest and richest part of the world was a factor of about four. Now it's a factor of 100. Like in our data in Congo, the average wage of somebody in Kananga is about one US dollar a day. So $350 a year is people's income. The average income in the United States is like over 100 times that. So that's an enormous difference. That's because all these technologies and subsequent waves of technologies, electricity, whatever it is, light bulbs, mm, they didn't yeah. get to Kananga. There's no electricity. Can you imagine? No electricity. How do you run a factory? How do you mm. read your school? How does your kid read their book at night under a candle? I mean, to study, like there's no air conditioning. There's a very visceral example of the absence of the diffusion of these technologies. So that's very closely connected to all this inequality in the world today. There's two questions there. One is, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in Britain when it did? And then why doesn't it spread everywhere? Why don't they have electricity and running water in Kananga? And I think, yeah, the answer in the book is about institutional dynamics. You mentioned the Glorious Revolution. That's about the emergence of inclusive political and economic institutions in early modern Britain as a sort of prerequisite for this Industrial Revolution. It's interesting in the 100 years or the 150 years before the Industrial Revolution, you get this political transition in Britain towards much more centralized state institutions, much more accountable, inclusive political institutions. And that opens up the economy. That's like the paradigmatic case for us. And why do these things spread so unevenly in the world? Well, that's to do with who has extractive and who has inclusive institutions. So the big story about why is it in Congo they don't have all these technologies is just because the institutions are so extractive, people just don't have incentives or opportunities to adopt or use these technologies. There's just the political institutions have been so predatory. And that's a long story. It's a story about President Mobutu and independence. It's a story about colonialism and the terribly extractive mm. institutions that the Belgians created in the Congo that devastated the society. And before that, it's about the slave trade and the marginalization of Africa. A lot of our work also is trying to tell these long run histories of why different parts of the world ended up with such different institutions. And that's a complicated sequence of events. But 
like that's I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense, really. I guess a lot of the influence throughout Africa and Asia is basically the institutions you see today in these sovereign nations are just a byproduct of the colonial history, or a lot of them, right? I come from Bangladesh, and when I go around the subcontinent, I see a lot of British institutions, right? There was this map I was seeing between Anglo-African countries versus Francophone countries, and I was just interested to see how Francophone countries were more extractive, and they were more poorer compared to Anglophone countries and that stuff. There's like lots of things about the French model of colonialism being different than the English model of colonialism, and the Spanish, what they did in South America and stuff like that. So it's quite understandable that a lot of the context comes from the path dependency, right, that you talk about. So that's quite interesting, basically. Yeah, I mean, we tried to tie the bits and pieces together. I've done quite a lot of work in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe has been a complete disaster economically since it became independent in 1980. Mm. It's impossible to understand the extractive, the post-colonial extractive institutions under President Mugabe and now President Manangagwa, who's almost worse, without understanding the white, the extractive white institutions, because it's in some sense, it's the grievances and patterns of inequality and extraction that were created by the white British <laughs> colony in Rhodesia, what was then Rhodesia, which have sort of created the very perverse political and economic dynamics since independence. So these things are sort of connected together. That's what yeah. we mean, past dependence. Yeah, that makes sense, really. So a lot of our listeners are from Asia and the Middle East as well. I want to get into, I think you guys cover Middle East in terms of the fact that a lot of the history of the Middle East, institutional history, is related to the Ottoman Empire, really. And I think you mentioned how the Ottomans created an extractive form of institutions. Can you explain what happened there? Why did it all of a sudden burst into the scene, starting off in whatever, like Central Asia, Anatolia, and becoming tricontinental, and then suddenly imploding itself, and whatever you see in the Middle East today? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a deep history. I guess the Ottomans, like many of the originally, they were the Turks, was a tribe in Central Asia, like the Mongols, and they were very successful militarily. They were organized along the lines of cavalry, and they, they devastated large parts of the Middle East and also Europe. The Ottomans captured Constantinople, was it 1453? They expanded into the Middle East, and then they conquered what was left of the Eastern Roman Empire in the 15th century. And they created an empire which lasted until the First World War. But that was, in many ways, it was based on feudalism in Anatolia. They had a system of organized, similar to Western... I mean, it's, it's different in different parts of the Ottoman Empire. But we would say that, like many empires, like many colonial empires in Africa that we were just discussing, the British or the French, they created pretty extractive institutions. They were interested in taxing and exploiting these different parts of the empire and concentrating resources in the center. That we give examples in the book of how often there's sort of contradictions between allowing the economy to flourish and maintaining political authority. We give this famous example of the printing press, where the printing press, you might have thought, would have been one of the most amazing modern technologies. Books, it allows the dissemination of knowledge and ideas and the accumulation of evidence. But in the Ottoman Empire, they actually banned the printing press. They blocked the printing mm. press. Why? Well, because... It's crazy. Mm. Yeah, but because it's an incredibly productive technology, but they were also mm. worried about disseminating subversive ideas or criticism of the government or mm. alternative plans. So for them, it was politically destabilizing. In the same way as the Chinese government today censors the internet like crazy. Yeah. The autocratic 
autocratic regimes are always concerned about information and people knowing things that might be unsettling. Mm -hmm. To sort of stabilize the empire politically, they were willing to block an economically incredibly productive technology. I think that's a very interesting example of the problems of having a non-inclusive political system for stimulating economic development. That's We use that as a very kind of visceral example. Mm, that makes sense. And do you think like those extractive institutions today play a role in how some parts of the Middle East is not doing that great because of that? Yeah, and it's not just that. It's also European colonialism. Like mm. European colonialism also heavily impacted institutions in Egypt and throughout the Middle East after the mm. end of the First World War. From that perspective, it looks similar, you could say, to many parts of Africa, that the, there was a history of extractive institutions, but then it was followed by European colonialism, which wasn't interested in transforming the societies either. To me, that would be still the main story about why the Middle East is poor. It's still suffering. I was just talking about Zimbabwe, but it's still suffering from this legacy of extractive institutions, colonial institutions, which left mm -hmm. all these dictatorships everywhere, like in Syria and in Libya. Yeah. And it has many of the same problems of sub-Saharan Africa, also of these colonially designed Mm -hmm. A pretty incoherent country. So think about Libya. Libya was created by the Italians, for example. Yeah. The first Correct, World yeah. War. But Libya is this incredibly heterogeneous country with very different very different histories, very different culture. And that's true in Africa. That's the big problem in Africa is just these very complicated countries. Nigeria, what the heck is Nigeria? Nigeria is 250 different people, 250 different languages with different histories, different cultures, different religions, different like worldviews. But they're all in one country and the British said, okay, now you're all Nigerians. Bye-bye, we're leaving. And yeah. so the Nigerians are still struggling with how to create a legitimate political system in that context. And I think many countries in the Middle East have mm. the same problem. Look at Syria. Syria is just incredibly complicated. Like President Assad, there are these Alawites. It's mm. a kind of dictatorship of a very narrow community. And how did they become so powerful? That's to do with colonialism and how colonialism empowered different groups in society. But Syria is a very heterogeneous place, very different mm. histories and languages. And you have Kurds. So that to me is similar to many of the problems in Africa. Yeah. So would you say that in terms of after the fall of the Ottomans, then the side Picket agreement, just carving up uh, different parts, and also some German dude deciding how to cover up Africa, for example, was some of the source of the turbulence that you see today of how these nations are formed and stuff. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Sykes Pico agreement is a fantastic example of like Western duplicity mm. and like kind of barefaced lying that while they were promising all these things to people in the Middle East, if they rebelled against the Ottomans, the British and the French were like covertly reneging on everything. And just dividing up the territories into our bit and your bit. And the Ottomans probably did the same thing. There's a moment when Lawrence of Arabia and Faisal and everybody yeah. take Damascus. So there's a very interesting moment where there's a possibility of like a different Middle East and there's all sorts of constitutional debates and there's people discussing and people come to Damascus from all over the region. And there's a wonderful book by a sociologist at Princeton about this, where you can imagine that if they'd been left alone, then mm. people in the Middle East could have come up with a much more sensible way of organizing the state system and authority and stuff. But then it was just obliterated by the French military. So yeah, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Really. Very recently, I guess the Middle East had a chance to turn the tables with the Arab Spring. What's your thought on why it failed, basically? That's a fascinating example. We use that as an example right at the start of why nations fail. This is like our model of how is it that a society transitions from extractive to inclusive institutions? It's the people who suffer 
under extractive institutions that mm -hmm. organize that. You don't get benevolent dictators creating more inclusive societies. People have to fight for it. But you see how difficult that is in the Arab Spring, that basically everywhere, even in Tunisia now, it's hanging on a thread, this transition to a more inclusive society. But everywhere else, it's gone into reverse. Like in Egypt, we were back to the military running the country, it was more or less a failure everywhere. But I think that's the bigger picture everywhere. Create more inclusive societies, you have to struggle against extractive institutions. And that's very difficult because there's all sorts of people with very powerful vested interests in the status quo who are going to fight against that. You see it's Sudan. Sudan in the moment, I have many Sudanese friends. There's this struggle going on. There's an existential struggle in Sudan at the moment about what the society is going to look like. The military are desperately fighting to keep control of the system. The Arab Spring was a failure because these extractive institutions are very powerfully embedded in these societies, especially the institutionalized in the military. And that's something very difficult for people to control. You mentioned the Glorious Revolution earlier. One of the biggest issues in the time of the Glorious Revolution was actually the control of the military until there was never a professional military in Britain before the Glorious Revolution, because nobody wanted to have a professional military. They were too scared of it. And it was only when they came up with mechanisms for like really controlling the army and making sure that there was civilian control of the army that they allowed a professional army to develop. That's a perennial problem in world history is trying to control the political role of the military. Yeah, that makes sense, really. So let's move on to, I guess, talking more about China in that case. For me, just a read of history that it's not only, I mean, Europe is in North America, I guess, is just one of the recent examples of tremendous amounts of innovation and economic development under a certain political operating system, which is quote unquote democratic and inclusive. But I guess from my reading of history, that's not the only moments where you had like spurts of economic growth, right? Like Song Dynasty China was miles ahead of medieval Europe and Abbasid Middle East was miles ahead at that time. So what is it about this specific political system that you say of democracy, which would make it more sustaining than those economic developments that happened before? And they lasted, what, 200 years, 100 years, 300 years, and then fell. Would you say that there's something inherently good about these political operating systems, which happened in the last roughly 200, 300 years after enlightenment, that is going to make them last longer than all those examples of dictatorial-based economic development like China and then Soviet Union is doing right now? I don't know that they'll last longer. I mean, I think if you look at what's happening in the United States now, the whole kind of institutional structure that's created this amazingly sort of innovative and prosperous society is under attack. It's absolutely under attack. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the probability is, but I think it's pretty easy to imagine everything collapsing in this country. And I think one of the big lessons why nations fail, we use this example of Venice, that Venice was probably the most prosperous country in the world in the late medieval period. And it collapsed mm -hmm. also. It went completely into to reverse. All the institutions that had created that prosperity were undermined and overthrown. And the same thing could happen here. Half the Republican Party are completely wedded now to that. They'd like to turn this country into Guatemala. Mm -hmm. President Trump, that's his ideal society, Guatemala. No taxes, <laughs> no regulations. You can do whatever you like. You can murder whoever you like. No one can touch you. There's 13 families that do fabulously out of that. And he just sees himself as one of those families. But income per capita in Guatemala is $3,000, not $50,000. 
But some people are doing very well in Guatemala, I can tell you. And they love it. That's frightening. It's absolutely, it's been frightening living in this country and it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away. So I think the Chinese case, you have great examples there. It's true. The Islamic world in the Middle Ages was extremely prosperous, innovative in science, in all sorts of aspects of society. The Song China, many innovations, technological innovations. I'd say that was all because there was centralized state authority. Like, why don't you see that historically in large parts of Africa, for instance? Well, because you don't have centralized political authority in Africa like you had in the Islamic world or like you had in Song China. So you have a centralized state, they can do some things, they can build canals, they can provide public goods, they can do some basic things. Mm -hmm. But they're also threatened by, we mentioned this example of the printing press, they're threatened by innovation, they're threatened by, and I think in all those cases, what you see is eventually that there's flourishing of economic success goes into reverse. China is by far the best documented example of this, that, well, you have the Mongols that obliterate many things. But then you have subsequent reversals. You have the reversal of all of this globalization and the the famous admiral who sails to Africa, Mm. basically into ocean, into oceanic trade is like banned to the ships rot. Like the autocratic state moves against this sort of what it sees as this subversive innovation and like the printing press. So I guess my view is pretty simple, which is that centralized, unaccountable political power always gets abused. That abuse takes many forms, but one of the things it's bad for is economic Mm. prosperity and innovation because Mm. innovation requires free thinking and free thinking is poison to autocratic regimes. What has created all this wealth in Western society and all this innovation and prosperity is this fusion of centralized state institutions, but accountability with these democratic practices and stuff. But that doesn't mean that's necessarily stable. That's a different thing. Maybe it worked for 200 years, but there's always incentives to set up extractive institutions. It doesn't matter how inclusive society is. There's Mm. always incentives to set up extractive institutions. And that's what you see in the United States at this time, at this moment. So that political struggle over how society is organized never ends. Like Mm. never, there's no end to history. It's a kind of Hegelian, you know, it's a sort of Hegelian struggle in some sense. Like there's always these alternative models of society fighting against each other. And maybe what's remarkable is it's lasted as long as it has. Yeah. But what about China, though? I mean, why do you specifically think that China is going to be like a Soviet Union where there's a lot of economic growth over a few decades and it's not sustainable? If you look at what drove economic growth in China from the 1970s, that is very consistent with the theory in the sense that what drove it is this movement towards much more inclusive economic institutions. The market. Yeah, the market. It was just abolishing. The first thing Deng Xiaoping did was he abolished the collectivization of agriculture, allowed people to kind of make their own decisions. They, they deregulated prices. They introduced this household responsibility systems. People could just make their own decisions and decide what to plant and what to do. They created incentives. It's like very straightforward. And there was a huge increase in productivity. Then in the 1980s, that starts spreading into the industrial sector. That big picture is what leads to this massive spurt of economic growth is this transition from extracted to inclusive economic institutions. But what I say is like, that won't persist because political institutions are still extractive. Yeah, you have this very effective state, but it's completely 
completely unaccountable to the people. And now it's a personalized dictatorship. That's also mm. very interesting. When we wrote the book, many people criticized us when it came out 10 years ago. They said, oh, no, China's different. In China, Deng Xiaoping institutionalized these term limits for the leader. And no, President Xi got rid of that. There was no institutional mechanism that could kind of protect something like that could create something like that. So now you have this personalistic dictatorship. I think if you look at Chinese history, how that's going to end, like think about Chairman Mao, the Cultural Revolution, mm. the Great Leap Forward, something disastrous is going to happen. I don't know what it is. And it's, that's going to be very idiosyncratic. And it's going to be very scary because China now has this huge global footprint in a way that it didn't when they had the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward or the Communist Revolution or whatever it was. Who could tell some story about how the Chinese are different and there's some Confucian culture? Those things are worth discussing seriously as, as scholars and intellectuals or whatever. I think that's interesting. But for me, looking at world history, people are sort of the same everywhere in my experiences and power corrupts everywhere in the world. And I don't think there's anything specifically Chinese that's going to save them from disaster, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way to think about it, really. So one of the questions I put out to the listeners to ask, would they like to hear from you? And a lot of them actually got back to me with specific question of, does geography and culture help contribute to poverty? And I think where they're coming from was this book by Jared Diamond on guns, germs, and steel. What they were getting at is that most phenomena in society is like a multivariate problem. It's just not like one sociopolitical thing like institutions or something. I guess the question was that what does a unification of guns, germs, and steel and why nations fail look like? And is that even possible? Have you guys considered the other kind of variables that go into why poverty exists or doesn't exist or why people fail or not? Guns, germs, and steel is the absolutely brilliant book. I wish I could write a book that good. And Jared Diamond, he's a very good friend of mine personally. I have an enormous uh, admiration for him as an intellectual and human being. But I disagree fundamentally with the thesis. I don't think geography is terribly important in explaining human history, to be honest. I think the history of humanity is a history of human beings innovating and overcoming mm -hmm. ecological or geographical constraints, not succumbing to them. The example I always give when I teach is that there's 9,000 species of ants in the world. And when ants mm -hmm. got to Canada, what did they do? It's cold. They speciated. They speciated mm -hmm. to kind of adapt. What did human beings do when they got to Canada? They invented the igloo and developed a taste for seal blubber. Humans adapt. They're just amazingly good at creating different types of societies and technologies and coping with all the kind of ecological and geographical variation in the world. I don't really buy any of that, to be honest with you. A lot of the scientific research that Professor Asimoglu and I started doing together 30 years ago was focused on trying to show that these geographical explanations don't really explain anything. Culture, I think, is more complicated. When we talk about institutions in a broad way, I mentioned earlier institutions are informal rules or social norms or that affect people's incentives or behavior. Many of those things are related to, you could say, to culture. I think it's pretty difficult to talk about mm. the history of political institutions, for example, as we've been doing without mm. thinking about ideas, without thinking about political philosophy. You were mentioning the Glorious Revolution. Well, mm. who was the intellectual mastermind of the Glorious Revolution? John mm. Locke, Thomas Hobbes, all these scholars who came up with these ideas for how do we organize a society? How do we organize a political system? How do we think about the problems in society and solving them? I would say Professor Asimoglu and I were doing a lot of work on what you might call culture nowadays. I said earlier, when you do research, you have to bite off something you can chew. You can't embrace all the complexity of the world. But a lot 
lot of my work in the last 20 years in Africa, for example, and in Colombia, also I work mm. a lot in South America. I teach in Colombia every summer, is trying to understand these societies in a deeper way and in a comparative way. And I think that does involve culture. I don't have nice generalizations about cultural differences. The study of culture makes me feel uncomfortable also because there's a lot of people in social science who want to say, oh, Africa is poor because Africans have all this sort of dysfunctional culture and things like that. In my experience, I'm much more interested in celebrating African culture than blaming it for anything, to be honest with you. Like to me, being in Africa is just such a thrill because mm. it's so rich culturally, historically. I just love the people and life there. And it's fulfilling in a way that this very individualistic, isolated Western society is not, if you want mm. my opinion. So I'm pretty happy with the story about power and colonialism. For me, that's still the big story. Mm -hmm. Does culture contribute to patterns of economic development? Yeah, surely. Mm. It's very badly measured and conceptualized by social scientists. We're mm. working on it at the moment. I'm not getting any younger, so I don't know how much <laughs> progress yeah. we'll make. But yeah. I don't think geography, forget that. Culture, mm. yeah, interesting. I mean, I come back to one of the things we discussed earlier. For mm. me, like one of the big questions is that, is there some Asian, East Asian cultural model? Of, <laughs> yeah. Like, is it a coincidence that all of these very successful experiences of economic development, Korea, Japan, mm. China, Singapore, Malaysia, mm. they're all in East Asia. Mm. And like, of course, the Philippines is yeah. not like that, but the Philippines is very different culturally also. There's some interesting puzzles to think about through a cultural lens, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, again, I leave it to yourself and your co-author to educate us in the future, hopefully. But I mean, there is something about culture, I think, in China right now that there's like the 996 culture, like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. for six days a week. And people are on that and that's decreasing productivity over the long run, but giving a lot of short term productivity. And just going around, Germans initially were known for their very amazingly disciplined culture and stuff. I don't know. It's something there. But also for me, it's fascinating how the culture changes over time and that negatively or positively affects. And that's based on ideas, right? So yeah, that's the interesting thing there. But yeah, I leave it to you to unearth how that comes about, basically. Let's see how much progress I make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to touch on something and then we'll start kind of wrapping up the conversation. So in the book, you mentioned something about the virtuous cycle and the vicious cycle. Can you tell us with a bit of examples of how that plays off? What do you mean by those virtuous and vicious cycle? Yeah, that's a way of just saying that inclusive institutions tend to persist. There are, at least there are forces that lead. Once you create an inclusive society, there are feedback loops that tend to, for that to persist. And at the same time, once you create an extractive society, there are forces that lead that to perpetuate itself over time. So virtuous circle is like the, is the sort of persistence of inclusive institutions and the vicious circle is the persistence of extractive institutions. And we're just trying to say, like in some sense, we were talking earlier about world inequality, what historians call the great divergence, which is this massive increase in inequality in the world in the last mm -hmm. 250, 300 years. And that's, in our view, that's to do with the initial institutions in these different parts of the world interact with the British Industrial Revolution and all this technological innovation that's flowering in some parts of the world, but spreading in a very uneven way. Then you might say, why don't you just change your institution? Mm. Like, why don't you just yeah. switch to better institutions? Well, because there are all these forces that lead extractive institutions to persist. But the virtuous circle is about how inclusive institutions persist. We tell the story of the United States. It's not like institutions haven't been challenged 
economists in the United States before. They have, but somehow the positive feedback loops have always dominated. I think what we were discussing earlier is like, we wrote this book 10 years ago or 11, 12 years ago, mm -hmm. published 10 years ago before the rise of Trump and what we're seeing now in the US. And so we're much less optimistic about the United States nowadays than we used to be. But as I say, what we do show in the book is there's been many periods in US history mm. where in the institutions have been challenged in the 1930s, in the 19th century. We were mm. mentioning this kind of the robber barons, Rockefeller, yeah. Vanderbilt. They seriously tried to undermine institutions in the US. They didn't succeed. But of course, this could succeed now. Who knows? It makes okay. science exciting. So are you saying that institutions have become extractive in the US then? I think there's always been extractive institutions in the United States. Like, look at all mm -hmm. the discrimination against black people mm -hmm. and discrimination against women. This mm -hmm. is the example I always give at the moment. Like when people ask me, what's happening now in the Republican Party are systematically trying to disenfranchise black people, anyone they think is going to vote against them. But black people in the United States couldn't vote until the middle of the 1960s. In the 1960s, throughout the entire southern US, black people were disenfranchised. So that's like off the chart compared to what's happening mm -hmm. now. You know, that gets it in perspective a little bit, what's happening now. I think there's always been extractive institutions. There's massive discrimination in this country. And there has been massive discrimination in the Western world against women, against minorities, against black people. You're living in England, how people from South Asia and the Caribbean yeah. have been discriminated against in Britain. You know, think about this mm. whole Windrush business. I mean, like there's no such thing as a perfect society. And, and I don't think we're never claiming that any society is perfect. There's always challenges to inclusion. It's just by world historical standards, Britain and the United States managed to create relatively inclusive societies, but there were still lots of extractive mm. institutions. Like the big picture in the US, has the society gone into reverse? I don't think it's happened yet. I don't think it's happened. But I think if you look at the economy, you still see, of course, there's this ridiculous amount of inequality also, but it's still based on innovation. You may not like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or whatever, but like they made their money through innovation and by producing things that people want to buy. And that's very different from the way Carlos Slim made his money or the way Russian oligarchs yeah. make their money. And that's still true. Yeah. Will it last? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. For me, what's quite interesting about the US specifically and largely the world today as well is that it seems to me in the US that the political institutions and the political elite have stagnated, still running on the designs of like 80, 100 years ago, whereas the private institutions and the specifically tech institutions are still innovating and doing all the creative destruction that you talk about lots and lots. And I think compared to like 50, 60, 100 years ago, where a lot of innovation was centralized, like Manhattan Project, Apollo, now it's completely decentralized to the political infrastructure of the state, really. I see this chasm increasing over time. I see more and more smarter people going into tech and, and in all these institutions in technology and in privatization, whereas it seems, at least from the outside, that the politics has ossified and stayed there and always playing catch up, basically. That's an interesting perspective. I haven't really thought much about that, but it sounds right. Yeah, I think there is something very backward looking about the political system. Think about the Supreme Court and this endless obsession with what the founding fathers, everything is justified by what some white guy said in Philadelphia in 1780 something. It's pathetic. It's really backward and it's out of sync with the society. I agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk kind of wrap it up in terms of your thesis, really. How can your thesis be practically applied to lift poor nations out of poverty into prosperity? That's easy and complicated at the same time. It's easy 
in the sense that I think this language we use of, in, of extractive institutions, what's useful about that is it makes you see what's common about the institutions in North Korea, in Zimbabwe or Colombia or whatever. But if you wanted to actually come up with a plan making the institutions more inclusive, then suddenly all the details become very important because the details mm. of the extractive institutions in North Korea or Zimbabwe or Colombia are extremely different. But if you wanted to change things, then the details would become extremely important in terms of what you'd want to change and which institutions you'd want to reform. My view is I don't advise governments or do things like that because that's also about politics because fundamentally that's a kind of political transition. My view is that once politics becomes more inclusive, the economy is going to sort itself out. Like that's going to force institutions to become more inclusive. Think about South Africa. We use this example of South Africa that once you get this collapse of this apartheid white rule mm -hmm. and black people get enfranchised and the ANC comes into government, then that's bound to break open lots of aspects of the institutions, force institutions to become more inclusive, to give black people rights and access to opportunities and incentives. And of course, that example also shows that extractive institutions can have a long cast, a long shadow, even over a much more fundamentally inclusive society. I'm not mm -hmm. saying any of those transitions are easy. That's why it's complicated. Making any specific society, you're going to have to pay attention to the details to know like what should you be tackling and the types of challenges that you'd see in like North Korea are going to be fundamentally different from the challenges in Zimbabwe or fundamentally different from the challenges in Colombia. So basically there's no panacea or silver bullet in a case of breaking the mold of these extractive institutions. No, I don't think so. I think the details are going to be very important in all those cases. Absolutely. I don't think there's some simple recipe for doing that, unfortunately. Cool. Makes sense. Last question for me is in terms of COVID, which has brought like a lot of different changes to the world, society at large, institutions, the way we interact and the way we're having this conversation, I guess, over online and plagues. I mean, you talk about the kind of Black Plague a lot, I you know, in terms of how that helped bring down a lot of the institutions, legacy institutions and hierarchy within Western Europe and then really helped the Industrial Revolution. So what do you think are the positive and negative changes that the introduction of COVID at a mass scale in a globalized way, like pandemic like that, has brought or will bring into the future, basically? That's an interesting question. I guess I've thought a lot about that in the last couple of years. I mean, we do use this example of the Black Death in the 14th century that finished off feudalism yeah, in correct, Western yeah. Europe in a way that did create a much more inclusive society because it undermined a lot of the instruments of control over people which were associated with feudalism. I don't see COVID having that kind of impact. Mm -hmm. I thought when it started, I was very optimistic that we're all in this together. Like nobody can really protect themselves from this. It's a global problem and we need a global solution. We need global coordination. I thought it was going to encourage the creation of more global institutions, which might be good for cooperating with respect to all sorts of other issues such as climate change or whatever. But I don't think we've seen that happen, honestly. The whole COVID issue became sort of politicized in the United States Superbly. in a way which has exacerbated polarization in a kind of ridiculous way. You see these systematic differences between Republicans and Democrats in their attitudes towards vaccination and all sorts of things. So it seems to have exacerbated polarization here. In the case of China, it's given a sort of instrument for sort of increasing control of the state over society. To me, it's sort of exacerbated many of the pre-existing problems. I don't see it as having had a beneficial transformative impact in the way that the Black Death did, unfortunately. It seems to me 
to have like made pre-existing problems worse rather than really had any beneficial transformative impact. It's frightening to say, but that's kind of my feeling at the moment. Yeah, I guess we'll see what are the kind of long-term plays that plans out really. But on that very positive note, we'll leave it at that, James. Thank you so much for joining okay. the Innovation Civilized Podcast and what a great pleasure to have you. I'm looking forward to your next work, really, and maybe on culture, really. But thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.